Hello, Gateway. My name is Jimmy. And I'm Anna. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18 for us today. Therefore, my dear friends, as you had always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too shall be glad and rejoice with me. Stubborn joy. If you're not the religious type, I would guess you sometimes struggle with a passage from the Bible like the one that Jimmy and Anna read for us this morning. In one sense, this is the most religious sounding topic of all. This passage is about obedience to God. And come on, that doesn't sound very fun, and frankly, it's not very practical. But we can't avoid this topic, not if we want to have a connection with God. God makes a really big deal out of obedience. In fact, He reminds us constantly that if we don't obey, it will not go well for us. So in a sense, it's the most practical topic we'll ever talk about. The prophet Isaiah warned us that if we get stuck in a place of disobedience, we get separated from God and he literally will not hear us. Do you understand that that means God sometimes doesn't answer prayers? And Jesus, he told us that if we have an obedience problem, we actually have a love problem. It's a really big deal. So we need to hear Philippians 2, 12 through 18, because in this passage, Paul actually gives us some exciting insight into how obedience happens in us. And he explains some of the consequences of obedience for us. Now again, some of this sounds like fluffy religious language, but when you unpack it, it's pretty good stuff. So here's how it lays out. First, he gives us the mechanics of obedience. In other words, here's how obedience happens in us. And then he gives a specific issue, a specific charge to obey that's very important in the Philippians context. And then he ends by describing the results from our obedience. Let me belabor this a minute and illustrate how the flow of this passage works, because I want you to see this. Imagine me giving some advice to one of my sons. So I began by spitting some real wisdom. Hey, Jordan, watch the choices you make because the choices you make eventually make you. And then I address some particular issue that I have in mind for Jordan. Hey, especially watch out for your temper. And then I wrap up with some inspiration and some more truth about the results. Then you'll be a great man and people admire your character and they'll follow you. That's exactly how this passage lays out. So he begins with the mechanics of obedience. Let's start there. It comes in the form of a challenge, right? And it shows us how obedience happens. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, as you've always obeyed when I was with you, now when I'm not, keep doing it. Keep on obeying. And do it with the utmost sincerity and seriousness. You can't be casual about this. In fact, nothing is to be taken more seriously than your obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Now, remember, this letter was originally written in Greek. And according to the Greek dictionary, there are two words that can be translated work out. One of them refers to the process of working on something. But the word used here looks almost exclusively at the end result. In fact, you could easily translate this, make sure of your salvation or, or do everything to, to, in your power to, to ensure that you're saved. And by saved, Paul is referring to the dynamic connection that God has made with our hearts and to our ultimate destination with God in the blissful eternity for which we were created. Do everything to make sure all of that happens. This is what the process of obedience looks like. It looks like our best efforts at ensuring we're really connected to God now and in the future. So are you feeling disconnected? Well, stop the presses. Spend some time praying. Call a friend. Find out what God is like. Work it out. Do whatever you need to do with fear and trembling. Obedience isn't breaking the habit of using bad language. Now I'm done. Or obedience isn't learning how to be nice and polite, and now I'm done. Obedience is the continual work of maintaining our connection with God and keeping our focus on eternity. Yes, it's about doing what God says, but it's, it's really about training and relationship building. So is that it? Is that how obedience works? Because that sounds pretty tiresome. Well, fortunately, that's not the whole story. For it is God... Paul says in verse 13, who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. I'm going to say that again. For it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. I can't tell you how many times in my life that I feel like I've come to some new place in my own spiritual journey and I feel like I've done some really great work in getting there, and I have, and I feel like I'm tired, but I'm overjoyed at where I am. And I've, I've broken some bad habit, or I've, I've grown in a new and deeper way, and I feel a, a sense of accomplishment about getting there. And then, after some time of reflection, I realize that God was there before me, waiting on me, that He was the one who inspired me to move in that direction in the first place, and that He was working in me all along to get me there. I've used example before at Gateway of my marriage and my history of arguing, I mean, discussing things with my wife, Diane. And early in our relationship, I realized that my conflict style was often win. You know, I thought that was the point of an argument, right? To win. And Diane's conflict style was often withdrawal. So there were times when I was literally chasing Diane around the house because I hadn't won yet. At some point, I realized this wasn't working. Even when I won, I didn't win. I realized, in fact, that this was a completely wrong-headed approach. And I started to work against this pattern in myself. The internal language that I used was, don't be your own defending attorney and, and her prosecutor. Why don't you defend her and in your own mind prosecute yourself? Okay, do you have any idea how hard that was early in our marriage? I don't think you do. That was really hard. But as that began to bear fruit in our lives, I could feel the difference. I could feel the deepening, and I benefited from it. I was really, really proud of myself, frankly. And I had every right to be. It was a profound insight that some people never get to, and it was a lot of hard work. And then, over time, I realized it was God. He was molding me. He was pushing me. 
He was forming me. He was inspiring me. He was raising up exactly the right voice at exactly the right time. And he was waiting at this new place in our marriage for us to arrive. This is how obedience works. This is the mechanics of it. Without me, God won't. Without God, I can't. I think and I pray and I press in. I work at it. I ask advice and I listen. I read his word. I find out about his character and his will and I work some more. And all the while, he's working in me. He's doing the work and he's preparing this new place for me to be. Without me, God won't. Without God, I can't. And it's a really big deal. You see, the part of this equation that's God, which is really the whole equation, is why Paul knows he can press the Philippians and us to obey without being afraid of laying an unrealistic demand on us. He knows we can do it because God is at work in us both to will it and to do it. So stop the presses and get busy. There's something that you have let linger around your life or your character for far too long. This is a big deal. There's something you're doing or not doing that you know is not worthy of your life. Work it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. After offering the mechanics of obedience, he gives a specific example, the specific charge he believes the Philippians need to hear. Verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. I have to admit it. Sometimes I take comfort when I hear something like this. I realize that the faith of these Philippians was a great source of encouragement to Paul, but he still has to remind them not to be petty. And now I'm being petty, but when I hear this, I'm comforted when I realize it's not just me. Even these guys knew how to blow it. And I don't know how they would have responded to Paul if they'd been able to, but if they were honest, they might have said, you know, Paul, sometimes it's just easier to complain and argue, and besides, it feels good. And Paul might have said, it may feel good, but it ain't good. Not in the long run. It's a poison. Disobedience always is. Now, commentators have had to guess about the cause of the Philippians' arguments. The, The truth is we don't know for sure, but we do know the end result of it. We know because we've seen it in our own lives, and so had Paul. And he wasn't interested in seeing this very good, very healthy spiritual community get infected with this very familiar spiritual sickness. So he reminds them, do everything without complaining or arguing. When our children were younger, we had a kid's tape with Bible songs on it that included a sweet version of this verse. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing. My children are now having flashbacks. We memorized the song as a family, and anytime our boys began to bicker, Diane and I could be caught launching into song. I don't know if it did any good, but at least it helped drown out the noise. And Diane and I realized pretty quickly that this was much more than a children's lesson. Arguing and complaining are always signs of a deeper distress. That's why Paul puts this particular reminder in such an epic context. You see, he's not really talking about complaining. He's talking about obedience. In fact, after studying this passage this week, I've become convinced that if we really get what he's saying here, we'll solve many, if not most, of our relationship problems. Often my angst about life is really a complaint against God. And often my angst about this or that issue is really a complaint about you. 
And it's never productive. It's always a sign of deeper distress. It's always something that I have to work out with fear and trembling. Finally then, in the back half of this section of the letter, Paul surveys the consequences of a life of obedience. He gives the result. Now, he's not trying to be exhaustive. This isn't an encyclopedia entry on here are all the consequences of a life of obedience. This is a spontaneous outpouring of his heart. It's poetic, but it's packed with powerful and inspiring allusions to the results of obedience. And I know that those of you who have walked with Christ for many years, when you're able to step back and appreciate what God has done in in you, you can see some of this in yourself. In spite of your criticism of yourself, I know you can see it, and it gives the rest of us hope seeing it in you. Four things here that are the consequence of obedience. First, living a life of obedience results in being a person of integrity. That's what he means by blameless and pure. We are the same wherever we are, and and what we are is good and God-honoring. We don't need to hide. We don't need to nurse shame. There's no need. Obedience has set us free from that. Now look, concerning all of this, None of us are completely there yet, but this really is where we're headed. Blameless and pure, unadulterated, a character that doesn't have any pollutants, a life of integrity. Secondly, Paul reminds us that a life of obedience results in an intimate connection with God. Literally, he says, we are children of God. All right, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you're familiar with this kind of language, but don't snooze on how profound a thing this is. Let me offer a quick sidebar about this. If you look back to verses 6 through 11, which we talked about last week, you'll notice that Paul has recommended Jesus as the example of humility, as an example of how we should live, right? Verse 8 tells us that Jesus, listen to this, humbled himself and became obedient. And then verse 9, therefore, it says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Now, Jesus was from eternity in the highest place. He was always exalted, God from God, light from light. And yet in some way, his obedience actualized his exaltation. In some way, he is exalted to the highest place because of or through his obedience. In the same way, our obedience actualizes our intimacy with God. It makes it tangible. There's an interesting Old Testament reference from the prophet Zephaniah in which he warns about the opposite side of this same coin. He's talking about God's people and he says this, She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Listen to all those conditions that exist inevitably together. Our obedience makes our intimacy with God tangible. Look, we do not, repeat, do not, earn our status as God's children. We do not earn intimacy with God. That comes to us as a gift based on what Jesus has done. And God does not love us because we perform. In fact, this same author, the Apostle Paul, taught us that God demonstrated his love for us even while we were still sinners. And yet, in some real way, our obedience enlivens our intimacy, makes it real, actualizes it. That's why when you're in a place of disobedience, you feel so distant from God. Obedience results in an intimate connection with God. Third result, our life of obedience turns us into people who shine like stars in the universe. This is such a weird thing for Paul to say. 
I think he means that we increasingly become the kind of people who light up a room. Now, I'm not talking about personality. I'm talking about something different. Obedience turns us into people who shine, who bring something special to every environment we enter. Some of us bring a special kindness. Some of us bring a special wisdom. Some of us bring a special presentness. We make others feel important or alive. We shine like stars in the universe. This past week, Diane and I went for a hike on the uh, Bull Run Occoquan Trail. And it was a beautiful day, and there were quite a few people hiking. And everyone is careful to be socially distant, by the way. At one point, we passed a young couple. She was singing a song on her way up the trail. I didn't hear the song, but I heard her singing. When we passed them, they were incredibly pleasant. I would even say infectiously pleasant. I wanted to stop and have a conversation with him. About 10 steps past them, Diane and I looked at one another and said almost together, Christians, there's something about someone whose life is characterized by obedience. It shines. And by the way, this is not something you notice about yourself usually, but something others notice about you. Did you see verse 16? What the companion of all of this is? The key to our shining may be how effectively we can, to use Paul's language, hold out the word of life. How effectively can we offer God's life to others? How effectively can we give them the word? It's amazing how much obedience opens up God's word to us. Eugene Peterson offered a great illustration about this. He said this, at age 35, I bought running shoes and began enjoying the smooth rhythms of long-distance running. Soon I was competing in 10K races every month or so, and then a marathon once a year. By then, I was subscribing to and reading three running magazines. Then I pulled a muscle, and I couldn't run for a couple of months. Those magazines were still all over my house, but I never opened one. The moment I resumed running, though, I started reading again. That's when I realized that my reading was an extension of something I was part of. I was reading for companionship and affirmation of the experience of running. Mostly my reading was to deepen my experience of running. If I wasn't running, there was nothing to deepen. He says, the parallel with reading scripture is striking. If I'm not living an active response to the living God, if I'm not obeying, reading about his creation, salvation, or holiness won't hold my interest at all. Simple obedience will open our lives to a text more quickly than any number of Bible studies, dictionaries, and concordances. Obedient lives shine as they hold out the word of life. The last thing Paul describes as a consequence of a life of obedience is what I would call a concert of joy. Look at the last two verses in the section. And then Paul says, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that my life mattered, that what I did really impacted you guys. And even if I'm sacrificing myself here, then I can just explode with joy. I can rejoice because of you and with you and you also. You can be glad and rejoice and overflow with me and all together with, with one another in a concert of joy because you're living a life of obedience. You know, sometimes joy doesn't just happen. Sometimes we obey our way into joy. In fact, that may be the only way to consistently experience joy. One of the consequences of obedience is a concert of joy. 
I like the way Elizabeth Elliot put it. She said, we often think that freedom and joy means doing whatever we want, when we want. But true freedom and joy comes from only one place, obeying the Lord. So are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? It's a big deal, and there's a lot at stake. Are you seeing these consequences in your life? Some of you are, and you should rejoice. They have God's fingerprints on them. Let's pray together. Father, multiply these truths in our lives because you're at work, willing it in us and accomplishing it through us. And I pray, Lord, today that you would strengthen the legs or arms or whatever that have grown weak and enable us to stop the presses and to jump in, to begin to do the work of obeying you. Whatever it is, Lord, that we're doing that we need to lay aside that's not worthy of our lives or whatever we're not doing that we need to take up. I pray today that you would inspire that in us literally this week. We give you permission to move as we surrender our lives. And we pray especially about those of us today who just feel like complaining and arguing. There's a lot in our lives right now that's worthy of complaint, Lord. We lay that aside, and instead we look to you and your purposes. You know, I pray for us, Father, even in the midst of the quarantine. I pray that we would not leave this quarantine empty-handed, that we receive all that you have for us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us.